Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Welcome to another episode of Stop the Killing. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Hi, Sarah. I'm fine. It's so nice to see you. You're always. always. You have always such a lovely smile on your face. <laughs> Go to our YouTube channel. You'll see it. <laughs> That's true. Go at Sarah Ferris Media. There's lots of videos going up actually weekly, so do do that. But we're going to be talking today about a case that, well, when this happened, you were pretty much off the radar to me because you were just like 24-7 on the TV. So it's the case that happened on the 25th of October, the year just gone, so 2023, in Lewiston, Maine. And we did do a special episode of it when it happened, and we did promise to come back when we had more details. So let's take a run at this case from the beginning. I think that it is a great, you know, a set of facts that uh, it's still kind of coming together because it is kind of, you know, it takes about a year to put together a full after action where you feel like you really have a picture of what occurred. Um, but I think we have a lot of uh, distance uh, from it. So we pieced a lot of it together. And we as a population, not me and you. So, so the shooting occurred in two locations, about 10 minutes apart. In Maine, in a relatively rural area that also impacted, you know, how fast and how many law enforcement could get there. But what we have is a 40-year-old person who goes into uh, two different locations. One is like a bar and restaurant, and one is kind of a bowling alley. He's local. This is his neighborhoods. This is, you know, places where he frequents or has frequented. And he goes into the first place. Shoot, 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 and then goes uh, 10 minutes down the road, goes into the second place. Police are responding. They're getting a call, and they're responding to the first place. And he is down the road going to the second bar and grill and shoot, 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 right? And then he takes off. So just to set the stage, that's what everybody's dealing with and police are dealing with at the time. And it creates this intensive manhunt because we have an individual that we don't know anything about except that we see his photograph immediately captured at the recreational center, the just-in-time recreational uh, bowling alley, and, and they know who he is, and they don't release that information per se. They don't like say, hey, we're looking for this guy, but they know who they're looking for. And the still photographs that are released immediately show an individual who is holding 
an, a assault style rifle. Right. And he is holding it the way I would hold it. He is spot on. He, this is not the first time he has picked this weapon up. That's, okay. that's very clear, which might also account for the number of people who are killed because he shoots and fatally injures 18, one of the worst wow. shootings that's ever occurred in the United States, and injures another 13 and terrorizes this small town of Lewiston, Maine, which is in the northeast part of the United States. Um, it's just super, super sad. And the follow through and the way that information is pieced together, the story is not over. He had gathered together and planned to do this. He had uh, purchased, you know, extended magazines and, and the weapon that he used and ammunition that he needed. And when he showed up, he would just showed up in his kind of like his regular clothes. And it was like seven o'clock at night. So the shooting itself in some ways was unextraordinary. Law enforcement was there within a few minutes, I think three or four minutes they were there for the first time. But once the shooting is underway, he was already headed down, you know, four miles away. Yeah. 10 minutes away down the road, he was gone. The carnage is already done. This is why it's so important for us to think about prevention. This is why we do this podcast. Prevention, 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 and owning it. There are a lot of drop balls here on the story that I'm going to tell you. Okay. And we'll get more information on more of them probably dropped over the next, you know, six months or whatever is there will be more lawsuits filed and more investigations and more materials come together. And but, we should say that as we're recording this, it's literally only been a month. It's the end of November. Tomorrow's the 1st of December. So it hasn't been that long. Yeah, definitely. That's why I said, you know, it takes time to piece a case together. And there will be legal actions to come for quite a while based mm -hmm. on the circumstances here. So let's just share some of these facts on what we knew ahead of time, what we knew beforehand. So I did interviews in Canada. I did BBC interviews. And when you say you interviewed with Canada, of course, they didn't know where this guy was for right. a, a long time. Days. So, yeah, Almost I mean, that's days. enough time right. to get to Canada. And the Canadian officials were worried. I mean, the Canadian border is very porous. You can walk through forests. You can walk across gravel roads. There's a checkpoint at every single passing point, as there, were, as there aren't in European countries. No. So my notes on this shooting, just so that I was always... Uh, alert to what I should bring up include these words. Hearing voices. Mm. Hearing voices. Leaked plan. Oh. Changes in behavior. Weapons access. Hospitalized. Law enforcement could not find him. So yeah, so let's, let's kind of back up and look at the package as a whole. He is communicating with friends and family, as they say, and he is in the um, military reserves. So in the military reserves here, you do a little bit of time, like two weekends a month, you go do this. It's something like that, right? And so this shooting occurred in October. We learn after the fact from his family that he had a girlfriend that he broke up with in February. The shooting is in October. He is time. taking medication. He stops taking medication. Okay. Another there it is. big signal, right? Mm -hmm. Another big signal. He is broadcasting online. He begins to hallucinate he has a brother he has weapons that uh are at his brother and sister-in-law's house you know they take the weapons away at one point they tell the police oh he's come back and gotten the weapons 
Just clarify that for me. So he had weapons, but his brother and sister-in-law or family members took those away from him. They were in a you know, like a family house. And the brother and sister-in-law, after the fact, say, you know, he came to get the guns. You know, we wanted to keep him away from them, but he came to get the guns. And so he took them. So I think he has them. So like they're trying to tell police what they learned, what they know, piece by piece. And so because he has this breakup, he stops taking his medication. We know he has access to guns. The family members are told or decide he shouldn't have access to guns, right? His ex-wife, he's been married. His ex-wife and his son contact the police in May. And they say, boy, he's really paranoid and he's really angry. And by the way, he picked up 10 or 15 guns from the family's house. And we're kind of worried about it. And then, by the way, he's told the brother he kind of wants to shoot somebody. Just, you know. I mean, that's quite a lot of leakage. A bit, a little bit, but the family is very concerned, right? And they convince him to go see a doctor. When they go to see him, he's got a gun in his hand. And they're like, hey, you need to go and, you know, get some help. And so they're trying to figure out, right, what to do. They're trying to figure out how to help him. And he is in the Army Reserves. And so they had talked to the people in the Army Reserves because he has made threats he goes to training in July. And again, all of this is this is soup salad that comes together, right? All this is a big salad. Soup comes salad, together. what a great way to put it. Yeah. So it's initially, he's in the Army Reserve. So they reach out and they're like, hey, you know, law enforcement, Army Reserves, family. You've got a lot of people around this guy trying to keep him on the, yeah. you know, on the straight and narrow, right? And the military says, yeah, you know, he kind of seems angry and we're going to sit down with him when we see him next, and we're going to come up with a plan to see if we can get him some help. No urgency, right? This is like May. Okay. I think May, June, July. At annual training in New York, a soldier gives him a ride from here to here to here or wherever. And the soldier has such a disturbing conversation with him that the soldier calls back to the boss in, in his military unit and says, first of all, you got to change the locks outside. Second oh of all, gosh. you got to put armed security on outside. I don't know what this guy is going to do, but he's going to do something, basically. Wow. Now, I'm paraphrasing. I didn't use those exact words, right? My goodness, right? though, but he was left with no uncertain terms he needed to report that. That's chilling itself. Right, exactly. And the guy begins to tell people that people at these facilities, at this bar in this bowling alley, are calling him a pedophile. And he wants people to stop doing that. He's hearing voices and he knows those people are accusing him of being a pedophile and they're like ruining his life. And he thinks that the voices are coming from these two locations. And that's why he thinks that he needs to ask them to stop doing it. They need to stop doing it. By the time he gets to his two weeks in New York, now he lives in Maine, but he does his military service in New York. There are states close by. They say, you know, you know, buddy, they say we need to stop by the mental health facility. So yeah. uh, they take him into a mental health facility. Now, as we've discussed before, if you have an involuntary commitment at a mental health facility in the United States and that commitment is reported mm-hmm. by law enforcement or mental health officials to the FBI's database, you are prohibited from being able to purchase weapons. Okay, I'm on the edge of my seat because I know that that is sometimes voluntary. Did it get reported? It did not. 
he was put into a civilian hospital for 14 days and he was evaluated and then left. But the military said at the time of the shooting, or somebody said at the time of the shooting when they checked, they weren't really sure whether it was an involuntary commitment. Wow. Wow. Right. But the guy said he was hearing voices. The guy had access to guns. He was afraid himself, right? He's, he's afraid that all these people are conspiring against him. So paranoia. And that he's going to have to take matters into his own hands. And he's already threatened people and the military installation. He's threatened different bosses. He's threatened different police officers. He's discharged from this mental health facility at some point. And the military records on this guy indicate at that time that he is not deployable. And he should not be allowed to use a weapon. Did he have the weapons already in the house? Were they already there? Already there. All right. right. So, so even if that so, was one fire break in the case, he still would have had exactly. access to weapons. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Not that yeah, that makes exactly. any difference, but I'm just kind of no, right. Right. navigating my way through this uh, salad soup. Yeah. And the military, yes, exactly. See why I said it was salad soup, right? Yep. So the military says, hey, look, you know, we tried to reach out to him, you know, after we knew that there was a problem. And they were saying, oh, we're going to do something about this. We're going to make sure that we come up with a plan. Never came up with a plan, right? Never came up with a plan. So they had possibly like two legal options at that point, right? They could have identified this as an involuntary commitment and, and, and pursued it in that way. And I'll say that if, if it was, why didn't they report it to our NICS system, the FBI's NICS system? But then, you know, remember that even with it being reported to the NICS system, you can buy a gun privately in the United States. Okay. Well, here's a question because I'm looking at, you know, stumbling blocks, roadblocks, sure. hurdles, red flag law. Would that have. Oh, I love that you said that. Yeah. But so would that have stopped it? Like him. So then well, some. Because he's got the guns in the house. Would the red flag law mean that they could take those guns out of the house? So I love that you asked about red flag laws. In fact, in Maine, they have a yellow flag law. Oh. You're like, what the? How many flags do you need? I don't know. There's only two, right? So red flag law, which to remind listeners, is a law that some states have passed, many states in the United States have passed, to say, if you have an individual who perhaps temporarily should not have access to guns because they might harm themselves or others. There are methods, every state is different on who can go in and ask for it, law enforcement or family members or medical officials. And and they can, a judge can determine whether or not that person's weapons should be taken away from them for a certain amount of time. That might be two weeks, it might be six months, but it's not any much any longer than that under those laws. So it's really just a temporary situation. But I think the concept initially was if somebody is, you know, under duress and might want to commit suicide, it's a way to quickly get a gun uh, out of their home, right? Right. the concept, I think, initially. Mm -hmm. So people want to use that for other problems like mass shootings. The problem with that is it is a temporary solution. And as any of our listeners know, there's no temporary about people who want to commit these crimes. Mm. Sometimes they plan for a couple of years. That's right. Take my yeah, take oh. my guns away for six months. Okay, I'll just wait around. You know, is it bad that I cynically think that the yellow flag law might be that they give you more guns? Yes, should like what could get crazier? No, it is not. <laughs> what it is, is the yellow a, flag law? 
So it is just like a yellow light and versus a red light in driving. It is a weaker law in certain ways. In a, in a, in a yellow flag uh, situation as they have in Maine, the law allows weapons to be taken away from somebody if a law enforcement officer takes an individual to a mental health professional who evaluates that individual and determines that individual might be a danger to himself or others, and then takes the individual and that evaluation to a court and asks a judge oh my God. to... Right. So you know how many times that is happening? Yeah, that's a lot of resources. It seems like there's a lot of hoops to jump through. Yeah. And it's it's been done, uh, right? It's been yeah. done. And I imagine more in straight-up suicide cases. It, it has been used in Maine, and every person that isn't killed because of that is fantastic. But the reality is that for law enforcement, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said resources. You know, mm. your job is to cover this whole territory that includes tons of woods and Maine is just is one big, you know, forest. And it's lovely. People love that area and they go there to live because they love that it's forests, hiking trails, and a shoreline. I mean, it's just gorgeous. And with a handful of small cities. The FBI doesn't even have an office there because Maine is so rural that it's covered out of our Boston office. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, so it's a really lovely area. But if you're the one officer on duty, are you going to spend your eight-hour shift or 10-hour shift trying to find so-and-so and then get a mental health professional and then get him to a court, it, it's very difficult. And it takes a lot of pre-planning. And there's nothing urgent about the yellow flag law when it comes to being able to execute it, right? Just like a red flag law. So again, urgency is my through line here. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, 
Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. So this uh, shooting occurs in October. In September, he actually threatens to shoot up the Army Reserve facility. He oh, punches wow. a soldier. He's notified by a supervisor. And he has this conversation with an officer who calls the commander and says, he is going to snap. He is going to commit a mass shooting. I mean, if you're paving yeah. the pathway to violence, mm-hmm. every brick is kind of placed for you. Exactly. And this yellow flag law, although it's been used, you know, somewhat less than 100 times in Maine, it's never been used in this county. So the sheriff's deputies there are not as familiar with it either. Yeah, right. And this huge problem has occurred at the Army Reserve. The family members are like trying to hold this guy up, right? And the military gets this information. And so they call law enforcement and they say, hey, you need to do something about this. And law enforcement talks to the family. The family says, Oh, yeah, he has access to guns, but we'll see what we can do about getting those guns away from him. And the shooter doesn't live with the family members, right? So, yeah. so the sheriff's office is notified, and I'm giving you like all the pre, right? Because the afterwards, there's another afterwards part. But the pre part is everybody seems to know what's going on. But remember I mentioned there will be lawsuits to lawsuits to lawsuits because law enforcement was notified. So a day or two after the shooting, the president of the United States goes to Maine to give a speech and to talk to the family members. And CBS calls and says, we're going to do a special report. After the president speaks, we want to speak to you. So I'm like, okay. So it's brief and it's fine. And I'm happy to do that to explain. We don't know what the president's going to say. And the president gets up and says what the president says, which is like three or four minutes of the kind of things that a president needs to say in those circumstances. And then the CBS uh, reporter, who is brilliant, Margaret Brennan, I have so much respect for her. And she turns to me and she's like, well, the police, the police dropped the ball. The police dropped the ball. And so here's what she was referring to. The police had been told, when you go back and look at the police reports, what the police knew ahead of time, they knew the family was concerned. They knew this guy was hearing voices. They knew this guy had access to guns. They knew that he had made threats at the military base. And in fact, the military had notified the police hey, this is a problem. The sheriffs, I say police, but it's the local sheriffs. And the sheriff's office, in fact, went out to find this guy a couple of times and they couldn't find him. They'd go out to his house, knock on the door, couldn't find him. You know, a week later, they go out to knock on his door and they can't find him. If ever there was a case that we've covered that feels like we could have seen it coming, this feels like the, well, the red flags, the yellow flags, the green flags, everything's flapping in the wind with this one. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. You know, when he came back from the army, when they'd reported that said he's non-deployable, that same day he went out to purchase a silencer for his weapon. He wasn't allowed to purchase it because they asked him on the sheet, the yellow sheet, for his background. They said, have you uh, ever been adjudicated as a mental defective or have you been ever committed to a mental institution? And he says, yes. He's honest on his report. And so he's not allowed to buy the silencer. Wow. 
Let me just uh, flip that one on its head. If he had not checked the box, then what happens? It goes through the system? Would they have found anything? It goes through the system, and the mental health care that he got in the military was not reported. Right. So Uh, if he hadn't been honest, then he would have also had a silencer with him. Right. And it's building and building, right? And he was described by his commanders as a top marksman. Because he was described as a marksman, the sheriff's office, which was 45 minutes away, said that due to them being at a disadvantaged position, they decided to back away. According to police affidavits, he was being broadcast as a pedophile online, right? That's what he said. And so he thought it was coming from these people Mm. at this place. So he had a lot of problems and a lot of people knew about it. And so when the anchor on CBS asked me after the president spoke, well, you know, the police dropped the ball. I don't want to say the police didn't drop the ball, but I want to say there was a through line of a lack of urgency. Everybody knew this guy was struggling. Everybody knew this guy had access to guns. Everybody knew this guy was a problem, but it's hard for everybody to know what to do. And I think this is a massive and sad example of how we do not have a system built into our mental health care, built into our our uh, health care itself, built into our gun sales and systems themselves to do what is done in so many other countries, which is you want to buy a gun, we're going to have you come in and we're going to talk to you and we're going to talk to your neighbors and see whether we think that you are a person who should be able to have a license to buy a gun. And that's how it's done elsewhere, but it's not how it's done in the States. And, you know, we may come to that at some point, but I think that's the missing pieces in the building blocks to create that safety net that we need. Because the signs were all out there in this case. So sad. I just want to tell you a couple of things about what happened after the shooting, because I think that's also valuable to understand the challenges. And we always look at an incident and try to decide how we can do better. We had 18 people killed here, including the shooter, another 13 injured. But here's what happened after it occurred. We all live in this world right now where when a shooting occurs in a school, the whole school's locked down. And when a shooting occurs in an office building, the office building's locked down. What we haven't quite figured out is when a shooting occurs in a city, do we yeah. lock the whole city down? So Michigan State University had a shooting, right, in this past year. I mentioned Michigan State University because their campus is like nine square miles. It's huge. A huge. It's like the size of a city, right? Yeah. 50,000 students, 20,000 of them who live on site. It's a huge area, nine square miles. When the shooting occurred at Michigan State University, it was in the evening, the whole campus was put in lockdown. And it took them three hours to find the shooter after they got an image of him off of a camera. Somebody in the neighboring town identified him as a person they thought was walking on the street. Police approached him and he killed himself, but they discovered, yes, this was the shooter. And then the shooting uh, lockdown was lifted for the campus, nine square miles. So that became a discussion point of, you know, we have one shooting that occurred in one moment in one area of campus, and then it was over. And then for hours, there was no shots being fired, no reason to believe that there was. We dealt with the same thing when the Boston bombers uh, set off bombs at the end of the Boston Marathon Mm -hmm. uh, many years ago. And as they say, a manhunt ensued. And towns were shut down. People were told, stay inside. And the shooters were on the run. and. They were able to catch one and 
and then eventually catch the other. Actually, I was just in FBI headquarters yesterday looking at the boat that the second yes. shoe was found in, like 118 rounds or something fired into the boat. They've actually got the boat there. Yeah, the boat is in FBI headquarters on, wow. the, on the tour. Come to come from London to Washington, D.C., and I'll take you on a tour at F, inside FBI headquarters. It's on yeah, our FBI I tour. I to do that. It's a hard to get into tour, so stick with you me. You might be able to pull some strings for me. Pull a few strings, right, exactly. Yeah, so I was just looking at the boat yesterday, which, ironically, the name of the boat, Slip Away. What? I know. So this guy, he slips away, right, from his shooting, and he disappears, and he takes off in his car, and his car is found down the road a little bit at a river where there's a boat launch. Oh, so now, you know, what is law enforcement faced with? Oh, right. my God. Any which right. direction, it, what vehicle? Exactly. You know, did he put the put stuff in a boat and climb into a boat and go? Did he do it at the boat dock because he wanted people to look for him on the river? And, you know, did he go north? You know, he was a hunter. He was a known woodsman. He's comfortable in the country. He could have packaged himself up and disappeared yeah. in the woods. And, you know, it might have taken months to find him or never, right? So police shut down the city of Lewiston, Maine. And when I mean shut down, they like schools closed businesses closed, nothing is happening in this town, right? And so no business is getting done. No kids are going to school and people are more panicked. So this kind of leads to my first question, right? Which is how safe is safe? And is that overkill to shut down a a whole town? Because you're looking for a shooter. So that's my first question to you. And I pose one back to you. How many times after these incidents has a, this would be a, a tertiary shooting happened. Does that happen in your experience? No. No. So, well, it's happened one or two times, right? One or two times. The Boston bombers killed a person, took his car, trying to get away. But do we see that with, with most of our shooters, all of our shooters? No. And in addition to that, the idea that they're taking off and where they're taking off and how much of an area, there, there's no more shooting going on. Have we created like hysteria in the neighborhoods? I mean, you know what? I probably would have stayed at home anyway. I probably would have. Right. But me being me is not probably groupthink. I would have been like, right, I'm so glad that I've got eyeballs on my kids and my husband and we're all in one place. Right. But practically. Schools closed. Businesses closed. Pra- we've just had Buses COVID. not running. I feel nothing. like we've just come out of that. You know, like it's just a whole a whole thing, hospitals, people are going to hospitals or they're not going to hospitals. Like The knock-on effects of it are quite massive that you don't think of from your own sort of selfish point of view, like, yes, I've got all my mm-hmm. eyeballs on people. But I can see both yeah. sides of the coin. Do you order a mandatory shutdown of a mm. town? Mandatory shutdown yeah. of businesses. Yeah. How long do you let that go? Did you feel that was an extreme action when it happened? When it first happened, as I said, I... I did so many interviews and I, Mm. so I was living it with everybody else. And after like a day, news reporters started asking me, how long are they going to leave this town shut down? Mm. How long are they leave this whole area shut down? And I said, you know, they're going to have to lift it. Realistically, shootings happen in the United States. We don't shut down a town because somebody shot somebody and and got away. You know, two people have a fight and uh, a guy shoots his girlfriend and then he takes off. Well, police are out looking for that person. We don't shut that town down ever, ever. So why are we doing it here? It's a news story. It's a mass shooting. 
Mm. It's a lot of people dead. And so therefore, they're shutting down and keeping a community in hysteria for days. And if the shooter had, you know, reproduced himself after two days and killed people, then others would say, see, we should have shut it down. The statistics don't don't jive for this. And anybody who's ever lost somebody to firearms violence would say, I don't care about statistics. And I totally respect that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, exactly. I totally respect that. Right. Like I said, shooters uh, from high schools come from high school or right after high school. Yeah, except for the one that didn't, right? You know, but, you know. No absolutes. Um, No absolutes. Right. Which is good. So the reason that I'm getting calls in part is because the police are not holding any press conferences to tell us what's going on. I always feel like my job is to limit the speculation. Yeah, because it rain in the speculation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, my job is like, let's put aside all the conspiracy theories. And the news guys are out there working their sources, getting this information. The information that I told you about, most of that came from news sources. Yeah. That people who knocked on somebody's door, people who went to the military because they found out he was in the reserves, they talked to the neighbor, and they're beginning to piece it together. But the police are not hosting any press conferences to clarify the facts that they know. Immediately, the media went to law enforcement knows a lot more, a lot more than we know, and they are not telling us, and it is not going to look good for them. And in fact, what do we know all this time later? Law enforcement not only knew he was hearing voices, knew he had access to guns, knew he had threatened to kill people, knew that somebody had reported that he might commit a mass shooting. Yeah. Knew that he was struggling himself with his own mental health, hearing voices and saying he wanted to take care of, you know, do things. So law enforcement was notified. Law enforcement Mm -hmm. went to his house looking for him a couple of times. So you can see why Margaret Brennan from CBS would have said, this is a total law enforcement failure. Yeah. And very hard to stand up, I guess, when you put that into that kind of context at a podium and be like, we're as shocked as all of you. Right. So I don't begrudge her for asking me that question. That was her job. And that was important to do. I think it was important for me to have uh, the public understand that law enforcement is the last resort. And yes, they failed. Uh, Perhaps here they failed. Uh, But there were others before who had information and the through line was a lack of urgency, the military uh, urgency. You know, the the fact that we have a system that says uh, I shouldn't be able to buy a gun. I'm going to check off that I was in a mental institution and there is no legal follow on system to find Mm -hmm. out whether this guy has guns already or is buying other guns. We don't have the systems in place. So to me, it's a systematic failure. Yeah. Not just law enforcement. Mm-hmm. But law enforcement at the time, the blame will be placed flatly on the last uh, car before the car accident, right? It will be yeah. blamed on the law enforcement officers. And I guess I see it. I see the bigger picture and not defending law enforcement's lack of urgency or not. And I'm not there. I don't know what the reports did. I don't know who went out and tried to find him, what the circumstances were, right? At, you know, as we speak right now. And more will come out and tell us a lot more. Yeah. But that idea that, There was no press conference, so media has to speculate about what they know and look to their sources and call other people, including calling inside sources in the law enforcement offices, right? They're calling police who are going off the record on background, providing information. So we're getting out information that isn't isn't necessarily whole or accurate, which is no help in an investigation. 
where the entire town is shut down yeah. for three days. And we can't find this guy. And there's this massive manhunt going on trying to find this guy. And did he go down river? And we're sending divers in to see if he is underwater. You know, we're sending in these, these high falutin, you know, professional law enforcement divers to go see if he's on the bottom of the river or the gun is there on the bottom of the river and also other cars. And can we check anything? Can, what can we get off the car that he left behind? What can we get from his family? The type of stuff that you need to do for an investigation. They go to where he recently lost his job. It is not far away because he's a local, right? And they search all over there. They're searching and searching and searching for days and they're expanding their search. And then they're bringing their search back in. They have no evidence that he's fled the area, no evidence that he's still in the area. They have a guy who's basically disappeared. So what do you think when you're doing that as an investigator? You think he's not out there somewhere. He's here somewhere. And they re-evaluate where they're looking for him. And they start going back through where they've already searched. Still no press conference. People are making, all we see is there's a, he's got a family has property over here. And all of a sudden one night when it's dark, Law enforcement shows up with all kinds of lights and they do some search on some building and then they scurry out of the building. And so now we've got law enforcement, maybe outside a building, holding guns on towards a building with lights on it. Hey, is there a guy in the building? This is what we're seeing on television. This is what the news is reporting. Turns out after the fact, the building was empty. Obviously, somebody who went in heard something and they backed out because that's the safe thing to do. If you think there's somebody inside, you back out. He wasn't there. But they had to go about it like the next day. They go in in the dark. Then the next day they have to go back because somebody told them they thought they heard something. But Mm. we don't know because we're not hearing anything from police themselves. And I mean, also, everybody's sitting in their houses for three days, just probably glued to the TV. Right. Exactly. Exactly. With no information other than the gossip they're picking up on social media feeds, whatever it might be. Right. And so that's not making it any better. But here's the saddest part. The city was on lockdown. And because of that, the people who died and their family members, they were not able to even console each other. That is inhumane. Could you not have created a safe space with security or something? I guess resources were thin, but wow, that's just a really horrible reality of that. Yeah, it was very hard, I think. And I'm not even beginning to speak for the people of Lewis Domain, but the reality is that it had to have been tremendously challenging mm-hmm. for uh, for them to deal with 18 people who were dead from two different places, people who they all knew each other, you know, they bowled together. Some of the people in the bowling alley were from the deaf community. We know that because everything uh, after that had two interpreters, American Sign Language, ASL, interpreting for everybody and they're very limited news coming out and then no ability to gather together so it was a tremendously uh, extraordinarily extra painful uh, environment to deal with and so they close back on ranks and they begin to go back through what they've already searched and they go to the building where he was employed and they search the building where he was employed got fired and they don't find him there but outside the building there are trucks containers And there are like 60 or something, like 50 or 60 containers. And three days later, they find out that he's died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound and he is inside one of those trucks. And that 
coroner says it probably happened that very day. Wow. So everything is sad about it because it's really hard to talk about the case and not say this is something we could have prevented. Yeah, I think that's fair. So there'll be a lot more to come on this case, but I did want to share with you kind of the updated information that we had on it and know that, as I said, it takes time for reports to come out. Criticize what you may. Law enforcement is pretty darn good about criticizing themselves after the fact and seeing what they could have done better. And there will be lawsuits from family members and others. But everybody down the road, I'm sure, who's involved is kind of reevaluating. Maybe I should have done something. Maybe I could have been more urgent. Maybe I should have been clearer. You know, maybe I should not have worried about him being mad at me. You know, make it somebody else's problem. It's really easy to make it law enforcement's problem or somebody else's problem. But it's really our, it's all of our problems. And that's really why we do the podcast. Because we, we want everybody to know they can participate in stopping the killing. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows hi i'm matt harris seaton tucker and i host the podcast impact of influence which for two years covered in depth 
Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.